Fifteen years ago this month, the Cato Institute launched the Cato Daily Podcast, and to mark the occasion, we're hoping to give you a token of our appreciation and ask a small favor. Visit cato.org slash cdp15 to get a pair of vinyl Cato Daily Podcast stickers in the mail and give one of them to a friend who might enjoy timely libertarian perspectives on issues of the day. That website, again, is cato.org slash cdp15. And now more than ever, thank you for listening. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 12, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. A secret federal court designed for foreign intelligence has once again ratified the somewhat careless methods of intelligence agencies. And that implicates your right not to be the victim of government snooping. Julian Sanchez details how the FISA court seems to regularly trust intelligence-gathering agencies when that trust, like most secret surveillance of Americans, is unwarranted. Before we get into exactly what the FISA court said here, what is our understanding about the police and investigative agencies' abilities to collect data without a warrant approved by a judge? So in 2018, Congress added to Section 702, the authority that permits targeting for foreign intelligence purposes of non-U.S. persons outside the U.S., um, added a requirement that uh, was fairly narrow, but meant to respond to concerns about so-called backdoor searches, the idea that you might have foreign intelligence collection in theory directed abroad but that ultimately is used uh, to get information about Americans that may even be used in ordinary criminal investigations as a way of circumventing the stricter safeguards that apply to ordinary uh, criminal wiretaps. So when James Clapper says that the U.S. government is not wittingly collecting information about millions of Americans based on their uh, cell phone records or uh, other data, that's what we're that's what we're going for. The collection. Uh, we're going for a, a world in which any of that kind of data collection is incidental and dealt with in an appropriate manner. Yeah. So Section 702 establishes an author a kind of general warrant authority under which uh, the FISA court, the secret FISA court approves broad targeting and minimization procedures, but not individual targets. Uh, the NSA has essentially discretion to pick its own targets and targets over 200,000 foreigners every year. Uh, of course, those several hundred thousand foreigners um, don't only speak to people in their own countries. We know um, that they're intercepting as a result of this at least hundreds of millions, probably many billions of communications every year. Um, and some of those are going to be with Americans. Quite a lot are going to be with Americans. Uh, and so we know not only that they are incidentally collecting a lot of communications on Americans, but actively searching that database using identifiers associated with U.S. persons. You have an authority that is supposed to be about targeting foreigners in other countries. Um, but once that data is all gathered, uh, NSA and FBI and other agencies are, in fact, plugging in the names and email addresses and phone numbers of Americans um, to search for that information. In 2018, Congress said, all right, if you do this, if you search for a U.S. person identifier uh, for a purpose that is totally unconnected to national security, it is only about a criminal investigation, and you do this in support of a specific predicated criminal investigation, then you need to go to the FISA court for a warrant before you do the search. Uh, as of yet, they have never done this. 
That is to say, they're doing all these searches. They have never gone back to the court to say, hey, gosh, we'd like to look in this database um, for information for a criminal purpose and uh, a criminal investigative purpose, obviously not a a crime purpose. Um, But they've never gone back to say, yeah, you know, we actually want to take that step of getting a warrant to search through this data. Uh, But that doesn't mean they haven't been doing a lot of searches on U.S. persons. Um, What the FISA court found, uh, and a lot of this is from late 2019, is a continuation of a long-running pattern of failures of compliance, of searches, uh, I mean, on ultimately hundreds of occasions, of the 702 database of emails and phone conversations collected without a warrant um, for not just purposes unrelated to national security or foreign intelligence, but purposes that you you might reasonably call frivolous, like um, background checks on uh, contractors and job applicants uh, for positions at the FBI. I mean, janitors, um, ordinary American citizens applying for an FBI program um, called the Citizens Academy. I mean, presumably people wanting to participate in something in something patriotic um, were subject to search um, improperly. A number of, uh, of uh, you know, other uh, accidental or improper um, searches through this database for U.S. person information. Uh, and sadly, we don't really have a very complete picture up to date because this is a problem that the FISA court had documented a year ago in 2018. And then essentially said, look, we're going to order a series of changes to your process to try and ensure that you don't have this rather uh, upsetting number of warrantless searches of U.S. person communications. Um, But then they acknowledged, well, the pandemic really interfered with their ability to conduct oversight. So we don't really have a very good sense of whether the changes we ordered worked, whether the compliance has gotten any better. Um, since since that time. And so in essence, the court says, but we're going to assume that all these problems went, went away and we're going to reauthorize uh, more mass warrantless surveillance uh, on the assumption that the, um, that the rules will sort of operate as intended rather than as we have empirically observed them to uh, to operate in the past. I mean, this is a kind of trick they've gotten accustomed to, to pulling that we've seen uh, frankly, year after year, which is the FISA court needs to certify that the procedures they're using for targeting foreigners and for minimizing, as they call it, the data that they collect uh, complies not just with the FISA statute, but with the requirements of the Fourth Amendment, of Fourth Amendment reasonableness. And uh, you know, the way they do this, it seems, is to say, well, we're going to look at the procedures that, as described to us, And we're going to answer the question, well, would this satisfy our idea of what the Fourth Amendment requires uh, if these procedures were followed pretty scrupulously? Uh, And then when it turns out those procedures are not being followed particularly scrupulously, they say, well, do better. But we're going to reauthorize again, essentially based on the premise of imaginary you know, much better compliance than we see in the wild. Is uh, the FISA court unable to find uh, attorneys or groups that they've given orders to in some kind of contempt? You know, they can certainly, uh, to some extent, discipline 
uh, people. They have in the past, for example, essentially barred FBI agents from submitting affidavits to the court, which is in practice um, career ending um, for for that attorney. Um, but you know, I, I'm not aware of any case where they've, for example, you know, issued direct sanctions unrelated to the court itself on someone who uh, who misrepresented things to them or failed to report something in a timely fashion. I mean, you know, the truth is the court is, as almost a matter of structural sort of necessity, highly dependent on the agencies they are overseeing to report compliance incidents. Um, so often, you know, the, the kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't argument you get is, well, yes, they reported all these compliance incidents, but that shows that the system is working because um, the agencies are, in fact, reporting these problems. Um, of course, if they weren't reporting, they'd say, well, it must be that there's no problems at all. Um, one thing the court is very clear on here is that, you know, one, a lot of these compliance reports do not come in a timely fashion. And two, that especially during the pandemic, they're not that confident of how comprehensive the oversight is or that the reports they're seeing are uh, fully representative of what's actually occurring in the wild. Um, you know, we saw uh, in a previous opinion them saying, look, it seems like you have some of these problems that are arising from uh, some of the electronic systems and you reported them in a couple of offices. But since these systems are not just used in those offices, it seems like perhaps you would find that this is a much more widespread problem than you've actually reported. And they indeed came back and said, e yeah, actually, it turns out that that was the case. Um, but often the gap between the the problem or the violation and the report is long. I know we recently just saw released the annual transparency report from the intelligence community. Um, in 2020, they had reported, uh, I think, one incident from 2019 where um, FBI agents accessed 702 data that was unrelated to national security, um, and they accessed actual content um, unrelated to foreign intelligence without proper court authorization. They reported one such incident. Now, in 2021, the report says, well, actually, in 2019, that happened 91 times, not one time. So we were off by 90. Um, uh, but we got we got the number eventually, maybe. The FISA court exists to uh, adjudicate uh, issues related to government agencies that want to do vital intelligence work and keep the proceedings of those uh, discussions, those debates, those arguments secret specifically for the purposes of U.S. national security. Uh, we have domestic law enforcement agencies that are supposed to be uh, doing essentially the other side, that is providing poli policing among Americans with certain constitutional rights. Is there is there any evidence that the the Supreme Court, for example, is skeptical of this? I mean, uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation points to the Riley case in 2014 and says, "Hey, if you're going to do these, if you're going to conduct these kinds of searches on Americans uh, for their data, even when it reaches up into the cloud to pull that data down to a phone, you need a warrant." Yeah, it has been reassuring to see a, a handful of decisions in recent years where the court is uh, starting to show a little bit more uh, skepticism of, of uh, some, some sort of kind of broad law enforcement claims necessity, and particularly to recognize the incredibly intrusive potential of 
uh, of searches that involve digital technology, searches involving uh, precise geolocation data, uh, but also searches of digital devices, you know, recognizing that looking through your cell phone, which contains all of your emails and all of your messages and all of your photographs is fundamentally not like looking through the pack of cigarettes in your pocket. There's a different level of intrusion. And electronic surveillance of people who are just driving around town. On the other hand, you know, um, one of the first challenges to 702, or at least the the sort of uh, predecessor uh, authority to 702, if we look back to, it's a case called Amnesty v. Clapper. What we see there is the Supreme Court uh, accepting sort of on face value a, a representation from the government of how that program worked that we now know was actually entirely false. Um, so the kind of original constitutional moment of blessing a program like this was one in which it was represented to the Supreme Court that the way this works is that the only way an American citizen would ever end up with their information in this database is if, uh, uh, you know, if there are either the, you know, the direct target, the only way anyone would end up in it is either by being the direct target or by being in direct communication with the target. And as we later learned, the program is actually much broader than that. There was, at the time, uh, it has been discontinued now, as far as we know, uh, there was something called about surveillance, meaning essentially if you mentioned a target in a communication, mentioned their email address, for example, um, that communication too could be absorbed and that as a result, um, they were in fact inappropriately collecting a lot of totally domestic communications. Um, the Supreme Court, too, I think maybe fell a little bit prey to what we see from the, the FISA court, which is, um, you know, looking at how it is supposed to work in theory and saying, we're going to make an assessment of whether this sat satisfies constitutional standards, not based on looking at how this works in practice, but based on assurances that uh, you know, with a little extra gumption, we will approach uh, the sort of theoretical idea of how we would like it to work. How do these systems actually work when uh, these agencies want to engage in surveillance of foreign targets? They incidentally collect uh, information on Americans. How does how does all that function? Yeah. One of the things that's really disturbing about the this recent Fisk opinion, uh, and this is an issue we've seen over the years again and again in a variety of different programs is that it often seems as though the systems by which uh, the collection and querying occurs are not really well designed to actually enforce the legal rules that people are supposed to be abiding by. Um, so as a, as a sort of, for instance here, we know there were a number of compliance incidents that, re that resulted from what was called a preview pane. That is to say, um, you're supposed to have court authorization before you look at the contents of any communication that are returned in response to a search. But the way the system worked, it was like your, you know, your inbox in your in your email client, where it doesn't just show you all the headers; it shows you, you know, the beginning of the actual email in the window. So you had a system where, you know, they're not actually supposed to be able to look at the contents if it's a U.S. person and it's not related to foreign intelligence until they go back to the court, but the system is designed in a way where it is defaulting to showing them the thing they're not supposed to see without court permission. Um, it's set up now, finally, belatedly, after they sort of pretended for a long time that this was infeasible for them to do, but it's finally set up to ask them uh, when FBI agents do a query, is this a U.S. person that you're looking for information about? And is this for 
only criminal investigations. It's for a non-national security purpose. Um, but the way it's set up, the default is no. So if you're not paying attention, it defaults to the answer that gives you access. And then if you have a session that runs for a long time, it resets back to the default. So even if you said, I'm in a session that's being run for a non-national security purpose, it sort of forgets that and then default in you know, a switches back to the default is you do have a foreign intelligence purpose for the searches you're doing. There was a similar problem with what are called batch queries. This is when essentially, you know, the, the, the hypothetical usually they give is, well, we have a, a, a suspected terrorist or a known terrorist cell phone. And we want to take their email contact list and their phone address book and just dump that whole list of people and search them through the database. And what they found was, look, um, this was not set up in a way to ask for specific justifications when you were when you were running these queries. So in a sense, the thing that ought to be most closely scrutinized, right, which is, hey, I've got 100 identifiers that I'm searching all at once, uh, was the one where they were lax about actually getting them to certify, yeah, we have uh, legal, uh, a, a legal rationale for wanting this information for all of these people. And we're going to certify that, yeah, actually that applies to all these people. Nor, frankly, is it clear that they were asked to make individualized foreignness determinations, right? You're, 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 you know, you're not supposed to be able to just assume that because, for example, it's a, it's a, a Yemeni terrorist's phone that, all the email addresses in that person's contact list are non-U.S. persons. Uh, it's not clear the system is designed in a way that actually elicits individualized determinations of foreignness. Um, so in a lot of ways, the system does not seem well-designed to enforce the rules the court has set. You know, it's like if someone said, well, I've designed a new email service, and it's very convenient because you can sign in without a password. Well, if someone told you they had designed you know, an email server this way, you would say, well, this is someone who doesn't care very much about privacy if they would make that design choice. If you, if you look at what the FISA court says about how the user interface for the FBI uh, is designed, I mean, it really sounds like what Mark Zuckerberg would come up with if they said, we want you to design a user interface and you get $5 for every uh, civil liberties violation. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. It's our 15th anniversary at the Cato Daily Podcast. In appreciation to our listeners, we have a small gift for you. Visit cato.org slash cdp15 to learn more. 